Please pray with me again. Father, we do long for Christ alone to be our treasure. Father, we know from experience, we know from the wisdom of your word that we need your help if Christ alone is going to be our treasure. And so, Father, we ask now that you would accompany the preaching of your word with the spirit of your power. Father, that you would open our eyes to the glory of your Son. And, Father, all of your promises realized through him. Father, we do even also, as that song says, we bid the nations come sing with us the praises of the Lord. And Father, we thank you as we'll see that this text gloriously shows how you are bringing that to pass. And so, Father, we ask that you would humble our hearts. Father, that you would open our eyes again to see the glory of Christ. And Father, that you would change your people as you've promised that you would send your spirit to transform us and to conform us from one degree of glory to the next as we come closer to looking like your son. We pray in his name. Amen. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you remember the final days of the Cold War? Show of hands, really. So I was born in 1980, and so I was nine when the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, and I still kind of like to think of myself as a young guy. Uh, and my kids aren't surprised at that because I tell them I'm young. <laughs> uh, but it's, it is something, it's kind of what I expected, seeing a room full of people, asking them how many remember the final years of the Cold War, and I bet it was less than 50%. I mean, that makes me feel old, actually. But yeah, I do remember, and while it wasn't as much a part of my childhood as it was for many of you, I do have some memory of years when it really seemed like nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union was very much a possibility. I remember some of those years. But I remember even more clearly the 1990s, those years that have lately become known as the great vacation from history. I don't know if you've heard that term, but that's... That's how those years, the 1990s, are being remembered. During those years, the United States was the lone superpower. Apart from Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and the relatively inconsequential shenanigans of a few bad guys, it seemed like there were no real geopolitical threats in the world. There was a relative peace. Alongside that relative peace, there was the sense that the booming prosperity of the 90s with what we thought was smart fiscal policy and rapidly expanding tech industry, it seemed that these might be just the exact thing needed to lift us all upward, I mean, kind of forever. That was the sense. But then, and surely more of us remember this, then came 9-11. In one day, back in 2001, Islamic terrorists crashed four planes, including two into the World Trade Center towers in New York and one into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And when they did, they killed over 3,000 people on American soil in one day. Perhaps rarely has a generation known such a shift from one mentality to another. All of a sudden, calamity enacted by foreign powers seemed like a real and present danger to each of us and to our way of life. Before long, then-President Bush identified an axis of evil that included Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. And over the next 15 years, a generation of soldiers was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight what was called the War on Terror. As that effort wound its way through the George Bush years and then the Obama years, it met with other political developments that seemed to reinforce the idea that our national or even global holiday from history was over. Political rhetoric became more heated than it ever had been in my lifetime, with each side seemingly choosing the next most intense nuclear option in their political strategy. On the domestic front, things went from a Democratic nominee who could not support gay marriage in 2008 to the Supreme Court of the United States making same-sex marriage a legal reality in all 50 states just seven years later. Not to be outdone, Republicans nominated a leader so offensive to the other side, and of course it should be noted that the other side seems unable to not be offended. 
But the Republicans went on to choose a leader so offensive to the other side that he became the first U.S. president to be impeached twice. Now, whatever the vices or virtues of that Republican leader should be noted, his foreign policy did seem more intimidating to our potential enemies than that of either his predecessor or his successor. In the roughly 18 months of the current administration, we have seen our military largely humiliated in its exit from Afghanistan, from which we seemed somewhat to retreat with our tail between our legs. We've seen Russia go from invading relatively small territories during the Bush and Obama administrations to Putin's willingness to invade the country of Ukraine this year. COVID has seemingly unsettled everything for everyone, probably comp comprising a large part of the apparent upset of the world order. Of course, I could go on and on filling in the details, but my main point here is that the nations are raging. And I wanted to share my perspective as someone whose formative years were spent in that period that might have looked like sort of a holiday from history, a vacation from the raging of the nations. I wanted to share my perspective in part because I feel kind of silly looking back, having been one who thought that maybe an effective foreign policy together with great prosperity and technology. It, it seems absurd now that many of us thought that we had come into what might have been a lasting peace. Now, just a disclaimer, I've said a lot of political things, and, and all this isn't to say anything negative about any particular political leader, and it isn't to say anything positive about any particular leader either. God tells us to be thankful for our leaders, who, as I mentioned from Genesis 9 last week, God has put in place as a restraining grace against human evil. And I'm hugely thankful, and I hope you are too, for the fact that whatever our complaints may be, our United States government continues to perform that function better than probably 99.9% .9 of the governments in world history. So praise the Lord and thank the Lord for our leaders. But anyway, again, I bring this up, and this is the main point of everything I'm saying here. I bring it up to turn our attention to the raging of the nations. I suspect that some of us are used to checking the news headlines, and we're used to seeing perhaps more and more evidence of the kind of geopolitical raging I'm talking about. And I don't know how it strikes you, but I can tell you what I see in my own heart and, and what I think I've observed in the hearts of others around me. Our response in the flesh to these things can tend to range from one of fear or anxiety to anger or even to the desire for control. And to the extent, again, that these are fleshly responses, they're, of course, connected. Each one of those is us telling God, somehow this isn't right. This isn't what should be happening. But I can tell you further, and we get this from Psalm 2, where it talks about Yahweh laughing as the nations vainly rage against him. And we get the same thing from Isaiah 45, where Rod read from a moment ago. I can tell you that we need not fear the raging of the nations. I can tell you that we need not be angry at the raging of the nations. As James says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But Psalm 2, the righteous reign of the Messiah, absolutely will. And I can tell you that, praise the Lord, you are not in control of the raging of the nations. Friends, not even the President of the United States is in control of the nation's raging. He is morally responsible for his part in it, as each person alive is, but he is no more in control of it than Cyrus, the king of Persia, was, whom God calls his anointed, as we read again just a moment ago in Isaiah 45. And that, by the way, was at least 100 years before Cyrus was born. Uh, I shared that with my wife yesterday, and from E4M, you ladies who are in that know, I think Abner Chow calls that the ultimate name drop. That, that God named Cyrus in Isaiah 45 at least 100 years before he was born. Who's in control? Not Cyrus. Not any man. It's our God. Friends, this is what we need to know. In an age where the raging of the nations can seem extra intense, whether that's the military activities of someone like Putin or the Twitter plans of Elon Musk, the pro-abortion activities of the Democrats, or the next piece of woke entertainment from Hollywood. We need to be reminded that each and every one of these things is, as Isaiah 40 says, they are less to God than a drop in the bucket. 
they're like a speck of dust on the scales. And as you can tell from my sampling of Scripture already, these are themes we find throughout the whole Bible. But there is one place in the Bible that is really the starting point for God's plans for and sovereignty over the nations, and that is our text for this morning, Genesis chapter 10. You guys can go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Genesis 10. Friends, what should we do when we see the nations raging? What can we learn from the raging of the nations? How should we think about it, and what biblical thoughts should it lead us to? So now you've, you've turned to Genesis 10. I want to ask you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word, Genesis 10. As we read and as we go on to study this text, we're going to find three ways. We'll see three ways here in which God is faithful, in which he's faithful specifically to use the nations, including as they rage. He uses them to keep his promises. So follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 10, and give me grace as I pronounce all these names. Genesis 10. Now these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were spread into their lands, everyone according to his tongue, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, and Misraim, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rama, and Septeca. And the sons of Rabba were Sheba, and Dedan. Now Cush was the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went out to Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala, and reason between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Mizraim was the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Nephutim and Pathrusim and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of the Canaanites were scattered. The border of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go south, as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their tongues, by their lands, by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Eber. Now two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan was the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Hazmarveth and Jerah. And Hadoram and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abimael and Sheba. And Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go toward Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their tongues, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, it's a long text again this week. More verses, in fact, than chapter 9. But the verses are, for the most part, much shorter. Uh, and believe it or not, I'm not going to give you the, name, or the, the meaning and significance for every name uh, in the chapter. Amen, indeed. 
<laughs> and so, for the most part, I think we'll actually have less ground uh, to cover than last week, which you probably all think is good also. <laughs> uh, so in these 32 verses, so 1 through 32, uh, in chapter 10 here, Moses tells us about the generations of Noah's sons and of how their descendants, who became the nations of the earth, scattered around the world after the flood. We get that as we see that same wording, verse 1 and verse 32, that forms, like last week we saw a few times, what's called an inclusio, saying these verses have one main point, and that is to give the history of the origins of the nations and how they scattered after the flood. Now, as we progress through this study, I think it'll be helpful to have a particular image in mind. As we consider what God is doing with and through the nations, here's the image I want you to be thinking of. A game of chess. Now, as with any analogy, it's an imperfect one, but there definitely is a sense in which we can think of God as the, the master strategy chess player. He's constantly forming and moving the chess pieces of the nations to show his faithfulness. So we will revisit that analogy as we go. We'll see how God is being faithful as he moves the chess pieces of the nations in fulfillment of his promises. Now again, as we saw, as, as we began to see last week, a big part of Moses' purpose in these chapters, and really this is chapters 9 through 11, so we're right in the middle, a big part of his purpose as he gives God's account of the origins of the nations is that he is explaining the world and its nations to Israel so that they can begin to understand how they relate to the nations. This, for Israel, was a matter largely of how they should understand the place that they were coming from, Egypt, and they're, they're, remember, they're in the Exodus on their way out of Egypt, and then they need to explain the place where they're going, Canaan. But that, interestingly, is not where Moses starts in this chapter. Egypt and Canaan are descendants of Ham, which we'll see starting in verse 6. But first, we see the line of Japheth, starting in verse 2. Verse 2. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal, and Meshach and Tyrus. Now let's think back to what we learned about Japheth in chapter 9. Unlike Ham, who dishonored Noah and with or in his descendants was cursed, Japheth, together with Shem, went out of his way to honor his father, and with Shem he received a blessing. However, we saw also in chapter 9 that their blessings weren't exactly the same. Shem's and Japheth's, they weren't the same. Japheth would be blessed, it says, and enlarged, which is a play on words because Japheth's name actually means to enlarge. But do you remember where the text said Yahweh would dwell? It said he would dwell in the tents of Shem. And as I pointed out, that promise was being fulfilled already when Moses was writing Genesis, as God had already led his people Israel, the descendants of Shem, out of Egypt and was dwelling with them in the tabernacle. He was dwelling already in the tents of Shem. So Shem's and Japheth's blessings weren't exactly the same. We see that Shem's blessing is being fulfilled even as Moses writes Genesis, but what about Japheth? Well, this is where we should begin to take note of the reality of how God would bless Japheth. And this is reflected in the wording of our first main point. You see on your outlines, faithfulness, God's faithfulness in mediation. You see, God's blessing to Japheth, as we started to see in chapter 9, was never going to be as direct as his blessing to Shem. It was always going to be a mediated blessing. This becomes evident here in chapter 10 as we note a few details of the text and as we chase out their implications. First, I actually want to drop down to verse 5. So look at verse 5 and note this wording. From these, the coastlands, and that's in my translation, it's probably even better said islands. From these, the islands of the nations were separated or scattered into their lands. Coastlands or islands of the nations is something of an idiom here by which Moses refers to the nations that were most distant and scattered from his and Israel's experience. The nations listed here were so far on, on his periphery that they were like islands scattered in the distance that he could barely see. That's the imagery. And so, because these nations were much less relevant to his own, Moses' experience, and to that of, of Israel, 
this section on the sons of Japheth is much shorter than the sections that are coming on Ham's, which is, like I said, Ham's line is where they've just come from, Egypt, and where they're going, Canaan, much closer to Israel's experience. And so, so this is a shorter section than that section on Ham's line and the one that comes on Shem's, which is Israel's history. So those are longer sections. But of course, we still need to ask, what is the significance of this short account of the line of Japheth? To, to, to answer that, let's step back a little and refresh our view of the big picture. Moses is describing here the earliest post-flood history. This chapter represents the earliest account of what God began to do with the nations after the flood. And it's given in the context, again, of Israel in the Exodus, awaiting their orders from Yahweh about how they will accomplish their purpose. And do you remember what that purpose is? It is, as we saw last week, to be the nation through which all nations will receive God's blessing. And what is recorded here on the heels of chapter 9 is that the nations specifically which God had scattered, he moved these particular nations, the, the chess pieces of the sons of Japheth, he moved them so far out that they seemed practically irrelevant to Shem's descendant Israel. But these were the exact nations God had promised in chapter 9 to bless along with Shem. Now let's back up to verse 2. And note here in verse 2 the name Javan. As biblical and world history continues from this point after the flood, and we see this in the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 8, verse 21. And we find it going forward from there. That Javan, and this is in most of our translations, Javan is understood to be Greece, the country of Greece. Now that by itself should start us thinking about how Javan's lineage represents the nations who would be blessed through Israel. Now, more about that in a moment, but next, in verse 3, notice the name Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz, in verse 3. This refers to the same people group as the label, the Scythians. Now, I realize that might not immediately ring any bells for you, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles for a moment to Colossians 3. Turn to Colossians 3. We're going to look at verse 11. Now, as we read, of course, over and over again in the New Testament, starting at least with the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus' call was for the gospel to spread how far? To the farthest reaches of the earth, right? To the ends of the earth. Well, we're going to read from Colossians 3, one of Paul's somewhat incidental descriptions of that intended spread. In the context of Colossians 3, Paul is talking about the promised renewal that is to take place in the church as those who are called out, called out of the nations by God to be saved through Christ, put off the old self and put on the new self. That's what Paul's doing in the context here. Well, in verse 11, look at how Paul refers to this renewal and to whom he says it applies. It is a renewal, he says, in which there is no distinction between Greek, Javan, and Jew, uncircumcised, and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Ashkenaz, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So what do we see here? We see God's faithfulness in mediation. God was faithful to his promise to dwell in the tents of Shem. And as that promise unfolded in Israel's history, God made it clearer and clearer along the way that he would not dwell in the tents of Shem only. Listen to these words from Isaiah 49, verse 6. And this is one of Paul's favorite verses to quote in the New Testament. These words are God the Father speaking to the Messiah. Isaiah 49. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. So too small a thing for the father to give this assignment to the Messiah to return Jacob, Jacob, Israel, Shem, to him. Too small a thing. He says, I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God has made the Messiah, who as we will see under point three is a direct descendant of Shem. God has made the Messiah his mediator for Japheth. 
the very chess pieces he had scattered to the ends of the earth by Colossians 3, we find that God had moved those chess pieces as he did, specifically so that he could fulfill his promise of a mediated blessing to Japheth that he made originally back in Genesis 9. Now we should ask, and you might already be asking and answering this question in your own mind, how is God accomplishing this mediation even now? The answer, through the church. As we considered last week, the church is the priesthood established by God in this age. We are God's holy nation, the very body of Christ, the very body of the Messiah, by which he mediates his promised blessings to Japheth, to the nations at the far reaches of the earth in this age. So think for a moment about the implications of that. Think about what we did last month with one of the dear families in our body as we sent them across the ocean and thousands of miles away to Uganda. Why did we do that? Because it is God's call. Why has God scattered the chess pieces of the nations around the globe to the far reaches? So that he could glorify himself by doing what might have seemed impossible. He so miraculously transforms the hearts of those whom he saves that we become willing to forsake everything so that we can travel and shout to the ends of the earth that it's worth it to lose everything so that the blessing of the Messiah might spread. It's worth losing everything so that the nations will proclaim the name of God. Now let me bring it a little closer to home for a moment. I do hope and I even expect that some of you have been challenged by the May's example to consider abandoning life in the U.S. to take the gospel overseas. But what about the rest of us? What about those who aren't called overseas? Well, we might consider that it sometimes seems like the people closest to us, our neighbors, our co-workers, even our family members, can seem like they're among those scattered to the periphery. That they're so far from God that it would take a miracle to draw them to him so that they would receive his blessing. But you know what? That's exactly what it will take. And if you know the Lord, it's exactly what it took for you as well. God makes alive. He mediates his blessing by means of the ministry of his word. Now, I won't make you raise your hands for this one, but you can answer in your own heart. You know that question we see most weeks in our small group discussion questions about whether the Lord has opened any doors for you to share the gospel recently? How do you do with consistently having an answer for that question? Beloved, if you have been made alive by faith in Christ, then you have been made a fountain of living water according to God's promise. You, the church, have inherited Shem's promise because as Paul says in Galatians 3, you've inherited Abraham's promise together with him through his son Jesus. You are now the means by which God intends to mediate his blessing even to those who are hardest to reach, whether that means overseas or it just means next door. And so I would encourage you to think, even right now, of how you can be ready to answer that question in small group this week. What opportunities will you have later today or any time this week to minister the gospel to an unbeliever? That would be a direct application of this first point, that God is faithful in mediation. God is faithful in mediation. Moving on to verse 6, we find, secondly, that God is faithful in affliction. Faithful in affliction. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush and Misraim and Put and Canaan. Now, Misraim, as you may know, and as it shows in many of your Bibles, is the Hebrew word for Egypt. And then, of course, we see the name Canaan. And this, as I said, would have been probably the most significant section of this chapter for Moses' original hearers. He identifies here the origins of those who had just afflicted Israel for 400 years. And he names also those who will be their enemies in the land of Canaan, into which God had promised to bring them. However, as the record of Ham's line proceeds, that's not where Moses goes first. He goes first to Cush, and he actually spends most of his time in this section on this son of Ham. After listing a number of other sons of Cush in verse 7, we read starting in verse 8 
of how God raised up a particular descendant of Ham's son, Cush. Verse 8. Now Cush was the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Iraq, and Akkad. And by the way, Akkad, I won't mention this elsewhere, but that's Akkadian. That's where we get that from. A common uh, Semitic um, language. Akkad and Kelna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went out to Assyria and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth Ir and Kala, and reason between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. So this is, this is Nimrod. All uh, five of those verses about Nimrod. So when we come to what seems like a significant aside or tangent like this one, it's important to ask, why did Moses do that? Why did he insert this chunk of historical narrative about Nimrod into the midst of a list of names? Now, when we ask that question and start investigating the answer, we should notice a few things. First, we should notice the similarities between what we find here in the account of Nimrod and what we found back in Genesis 4 in the descriptions of Cain's line. As I mentioned last week, Ham's line takes the place of Cain's line. Both represent the seed of the serpent, which is opposed, cursed, opposed to the seed of the woman, or the righteous remnant. And that line is represented first by Seth's line and now by Shem's. Well, as you might recall, compared with the little that we read about Seth's descendants in earlier chapters, mainly that they died and they died and they died, and they called on Yahweh and they hoped in his promise, in comparison with that, what we learned about Cain's line was actually really impressive from a human standpoint. Cain's descendants, we saw, were experts in music. They were experts in entertainment, in metallurgy. And, and really, most significantly, they were builders of great cities. As I noted back in chapter 4, great cities came to be a symbol in the Bible of human strength. And this theme and contrast continues even in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, we read of how the faithful, exemplified by Abraham and others, the faithful have always looked for a better city whose architect and builder is God. And so we read here that Nimrod, a mighty hunter, was a builder of multiple great cities, including Babel, which is immediately a big deal in chapter 11, as we'll see next week. But the thing to see even beyond Babel and even beyond Nimrod is that what we see over and over again in this account of Ham's line is nations, like Egypt, like Assyria and its capital Nineveh, like Babylon. These are the proud, wealthy, prosperous nations which the Lord goes on to use over and over again to afflict his people, Israel. This is what God is doing specifically in the account of Ham. God is forming and moving these particular chess pieces to be those who will afflict his people. I want you to notice the, the short prepositional phrase connected twice with Nimrod. It says he was a mighty hunter before whom? It says in most of your translations there, before the Lord. And you might have a footnote that says that's Yahweh. A mighty hunter before Yahweh. Friends, that is not for nothing. As you've likely heard me or one of the other pastors here explain before, Yahweh is God's special covenant name. God's, God's name, Yahweh, is connected with what is called his aseity, that is, with his eternal self-existence, the fact that he is constant and unchanging. And Jeremy in, in Sunday school mentioned the word hesed, which is the word uh, translated usually loving kindness or steadfast love, it appears hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. That is God's loyal covenant love. And you know what it's always connected with? His name, Yahweh. Yahweh, the self-existent one, he is constant and unchanging. He has no beginning and no end, and so he is beholden to nothing and to no one. And because of this, and this is his identity reflected in his name, 
Because of this, he is utterly free to keep every one of his covenant promises. Now here in this text, verse 9 is the only place God's covenant name appears in chapter 10. Of all those mentioned in chapter 10, Yahweh connects his covenant name only with Nimrod. Again, we need to ask why. Why would God connect his covenant name with the founder of Babel, later known as Babylon, and the founder of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, both of which would be sources of immense pain for his people? The answer? Because Yahweh, in his faithfulness, was the one raising up Nimrod. Yahweh, in his faithfulness, was the one who caused these cities and these nations to be formed and eventually to rage against his own people. Do you know or do you recall that God refers to Assyria in Isaiah 10, verse 5, as the rod of my anger? He says the same to Babylon in Jeremiah 51, verse 20. He says, You, Babylon, are my instrument of shattering, my weapon of war, and with you I shatter nations, and with you I destroy kingdoms. Babylon and Assyria, God uses as his rod of correction for his people. Most of us are probably familiar, especially given the recent Sunday School series on parenting, with these words from Proverbs 3, which are quoted later in Hebrews 12. Proverbs 3, starting with verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. This, beloved, is why Yahweh associates his covenant name with Nimrod the founder of Babylon and Assyria. Assyria goes on to be the rod Yahweh uses on his son Israel. Babylon would be raised up and moved by Yahweh to be the painful implement of his discipline. He uses against his people because he loves them. We have a tendency to think, and this is natural, we tend to think, that God is being most faithful to us when things are going well. We find ourselves saying things like, I got a promotion and a raise that enabled us to buy a new house. I got into the school I wanted. All my children are turning out to be geniuses. <laughs> and we say, God is so faithful. But really, I would submit to you that the biblical picture of God's faithfulness is quite different from that, at least in its emphasis. We've heard of this recently from what's happened in Ukraine, haven't we? There were church plants that had been sent outside of Ukraine from Ukraine, and they were struggling with low attendance. Not a lot of people were interested in church in many of those areas. But what happened when war caused more believers and others to be scattered from Ukraine? Those church plants ended up packed. The gospel is now being preached and lived with a new vitality and reach compared with what it had in these areas before the war. Yahweh is being faithful in the raging of the nations. In the case in Ukraine, he is moving the chess piece of the raging Putin to afflict his people in Ukraine so that their chess pieces might move to bless others. And so we can see, can't we? that Yahweh is faithful to afflict his people through the raging of the nations for the good of his people. And that's a grand example, one for which we see news headlines just about every day. But here's my encouragement for you, wherever you are. Is there evidence of sinful raging that has touched your life? Whether that is your sinful raging or that of others? I'm not encouraging you to think of this as a good thing that should continue, especially if it is your sin. But I am encouraging you to think of it in a specific way relative to the faithfulness of God 
On this point, it is instructive that the Hebrew word for afflict is the same word for humble. That's right. Affliction is the same word as humbling or humiliation. What is God doing when he brings any kind of affliction your way, difficulty your way? He is humbling you. And contrary to the natural response that says, this is not God being faithful. Instead, we must have a response that says, no, this is my faithful father, humbling me for my good. He is right. He is right to bring this to me. And it is evidence of his love. If you can have that kind of heart, then by his faithfulness and affliction, he is giving you the very heart that pleases him. The very heart he requires. God is faithful in affliction. As we continue, we'll drop down to verse 21. We find the third and final way in Genesis 10 in which Yahweh is being faithful through the raging of the nations. Faithfulness and blessing. Verse 21. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Here in verse 21, and then again shortly in verse 25, we find an introductory formula to the sons of Shem and the sons of Eber that is distinctive. It's, it's distinctive wording. And this wording hasn't appeared since chapter 4, verse 26, where we read this. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born. As you might guess, the significance of this is the continuation of the seed blessing that comes through Seth and then Noah. God's promise is seen to continue here. And remember, Israel was learning of God's faithfulness to their ancestors from what Moses writes in Genesis. Israel is learning from this text of how God's promise proceeds through Shem and then through Eber. And just so that might jump out at you a little bit more clearly, the name Shem is where we get the word Semitic, and that we usually associate with being Jewish. To be Semitic means to be a descendant of Shem. And Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. To be a Hebrew is to be descended from Eber. So again, we see Israel here is learning of how God's promise proceeds through Shem and then through Eber. As we continue on, and we'll see this next week in chapter 11, and really as the whole Bible continues on, we find this is its main theme, its main concern. It asks and answers repeatedly this question. How is Yahweh going to fulfill his promise to Eve, carried on through Noah, and eventually passed along through Abraham and then David? What we begin to see here in Genesis 10 is that he is doing it. This is what he is doing. He's doing it by raising up and strategically moving the chess pieces of the nations. Yahweh had preserved Noah and his three sons through the worldwide flood and had given through them the hope of recreation. And we find here in Genesis 10 in the specific wording relative to Shem and then to Eber that Yahweh is continuing to be faithful to his promise even as he begins and especially as he begins to reveal his plans for the nations. And of course, as you might imagine, and kind of as I alluded to, the whole rest of the Bible begins to fill in the picture of what that's going to look like on an even grander scale. As we already saw in the brief history of Japheth's line, Yahweh scattered nations to the ends of the earth. He moved those chess pieces. And he did so in order to show his faithfulness to mediate his blessing through Shem in faithfulness to his promise in chapter 9. You know what else we find as God's plans for the nations continues to unfold in the rest of the Old Testament? I'm going to ask you again to turn in your Bibles. That's just the second time I've done that. It feels like a lot. 
Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 is one of the places in Scripture where we find God's plans unfolding for the eschaton. For the time that is still future, even from where we sit. As Paul talks about in Romans 11, this present time, the time we live in, ever since the time of the New Testament, this has been a time of the temporary hardening of the Jews. And according to God's plans, which he has revealed throughout the prophetic literature of the Bible, God's plan for the Jews is that they will remain hardened until he brings the rod of the nations against them in a way they have never known. He's going to do that, such that, as it says in Zechariah 13, verse 8, two-thirds of them will be cut off. That's how he's going to move at that point, the chess pieces of the nations, is that two-thirds of the remaining population of Israel in that day will be annihilated. However, as it says in Zechariah 12, this will turn out to have been a dangerous miscalculation for the nations who come against Israel with the Messiah leading them from the remaining one-third of Israel having been saved, Yahweh, it says, will raise up an army that will devastate the nations that had come against them. And that is what is described in part in Isaiah 19. And we're going to look at this starting in verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women, And they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the counsel of Yahweh of hosts, which he is counseling against them. Friends, Yahweh has moved, and we see here he is going to continue to move, the chess pieces of the nations to show his faithfulness in blessing. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, I was explaining this to Jack in the office this week about how, and what I was starting with, and I hadn't actually written this point yet, so I was explaining about Japheth, how Yahweh scattered Japheth so that he could show his faithfulness to mediate his blessing to those specific nations scattered to the ends of the earth. And as I explained that to Jack, he sort of tentatively raised a question. When it says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, doesn't that mean all nations and not just Japheth? And I was probably a little too excited to answer yes, but that has to wait for point three of the sermon, which I hadn't written yet. But the answer is yes, and here we just, we continue to see God's faithfulness, mediation, affliction, blessing. Read again Isaiah 19, starting in verse 22. And Yahweh will smite Egypt, smiting, but healing. So they will return to Yahweh, and he will be moved by their entreaty and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party, with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Incredible, isn't it? If this doesn't show the abundant grace, the abundant forgiveness of Yahweh, his patience and loving kindness, his steadfast love that exceed what we might ever hope or think, then I don't know what does. The cursed sons of Ham, Egypt, and Assyria, used in the most painful ways to afflict Yahweh's people, he ends up calling even them his people, the work of his hands and his people. Friends, God has fulfilled and will continue to fulfill his promises through the raging of the nations. As Moses describes for us here in Genesis 10, the scattering of the nations after the flood, 
the intentional ways in which God has orchestrated and continues to orchestrate the raging of the nations, this should give us hope. When you, later today or any time in the week ahead, when you open your phone and check the news headlines, when you receive the call that there has been some calamity in the life of a loved one, when you or your child come down with a sickness, friends, whatever happens that shows you that the world is still full of sin and its effects, still full of authorities that are given over to their raging against God, remember Remember at that moment that this is just him faithfully moving the chess pieces. God has been faithful to form and to move each and every one. He's been faithful to do so in mediation, and he wants to continue to do so through you. So get out there and boldly share the gospel. He's been faithful to form and to move the chess pieces in affliction. So humble yourself under the difficulties he brings your way and say that he is right to do so. And he has been faithful. He's been faithful to form and to move the chess pieces for blessing. So remember his promise. Remember his promise and bend the knee in worship and thanksgiving knowing that he is bringing all things. Even this minute, he is bringing them swiftly to the day when every tribe and tongue and nation on earth and under the earth, every last family of the earth, will look on him whom they've pierced. And every tongue and tribe will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, you are a God abundant in grace and steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the wicked. Father, we know that you have sent your Son, Father, as the picture of all these things. You made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And Father, as we've considered, even in this hour, that the way you do that in your people is often through affliction. And Father, we see that it is through mediation and that it is through blessing. Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under this word, under your providence in all things, Father, to proclaim your rightness, your righteousness, Father, that we would be first among those tongues, Father. As it is said, your church is the first fruits of these things. Father, that it would be our delight going from here to mediate your blessing, Father, having seen it and proclaimed it from our own hearts, and Father, mediating it to the ends of the earth for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.